When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We were called and are united by a common vision, which has now become a command that we cannot ignore. The four of us are here to prevent the apocalypse. First, it was a beach that rapidly aged unsuspecting sunbathers. Now it's a lakefront cabin that becomes the site of a deadly hostage crisis. M. Night Shyamalan has fully entered his ruining family vacations period. My longstanding refusal to do anything that is even camping adjacent, totally validated. (laughs) This week, we've got a review of Shyamalan's latest, Knock at the Cabin, which goes into wide release this weekend. That and our top five M. Night Shyamalan moments. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, we posted a poll last week asking listeners what they thought of M. Night Shyamalan. Assess the filmmaker at this point in his career. We're usually wrong, but we often think we know how polls are going to come out when we pose those questions. Here, I don't think either of us really knew what the outcome would be. Some uncertainty around Shyamalan. Yeah, a lot of variance, I would say, when it comes to responses to his films. The options we gave you were M. Night Shyamalan is underrated and underappreciated, solid, more good stuff than bad, hit and miss, mostly miss, a one-hit wonder who peaked with the sixth sense. You did go with underrated and underappreciated. I've got some Shyamalan blind spots. I do really dislike at least three of his movies, and yet somehow my gut was telling me that he was solid, more good than bad. Josh, we were definitely in the minority compared to our listeners. Yeah, it looks like the hit and miss, mostly miss camp is at least right now enjoying a comfortable lead. And I wonder if that's, you know, a little bit, if you dislike Shyamalan, you tend to really dislike him. You Mm -hmm. feel quite strongly about that. I don't know if that factored in at all. Maybe. Hit and miss, mostly miss is running away with it, but you can still vote in the poll at filmspotting.net. We also have a version up on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash filmspotting. A bit later, we'll share some thoughts on Shyamalan's latest, Knock at the Cabin. We'll see if that release and the responses to it and maybe the responses to our top five, Josh, have any impact on how our listeners feel about M. Night Shyamalan. I can say one of those two definitely changed my vote in that poll. All right. I'm... Happy to hear that, I think. We'll find out. (laughs) We will find out. We are going to begin with our top five M. Night Shyamalan moments. Regardless of how you feel about him, you can probably find at least a few scenes that wow you in some way, whether it's the filmmaking, whether it's the writing, the acting, or a combination of all three, even 
the most ardent Shyamalan haters have to have a couple scenes they like. Josh, this wasn't too hard to find five really good moments, was it? Not hard at all. And as a matter of fact, I think he's got three top tier films that, you know, have more than five moments in them. So I could have just stuck with, for me, that would be the Sixth Sense, Signs, and Unbreakable. Mm -hmm. But I did want to spread it around a little bit in doing this list because I do happen to like quite a few other of his films. So I held myself to one from each movie in making this, even though those three could have easily supplied it. And I also tried to choose a mix of scenes, moments that exemplified his best qualities. And and I'd say there's three for me. He's a filmmaker who can be in complete formal control of a scene. I think that's why a list like this actually fits him perfectly, is that there are moments where he shows that complete control. Mm-hmm. I've also come to appreciate over the years how he's a collaborator who can encourage some great performances. I think that will stand out in my list and possibly yours as well. And then also I wanted to represent the way he has an ability to evoke genuine emotion in ways that sometimes sneaks up on us and surprises us in some of these films. So I looked for those three qualities. Not There's maybe one scene that I think has all three, but at least one of those elements is represented in each of my picks. Sounds like we approach this list very similarly and have similar takes on Shyamalan and his work. Maybe this would be more fun if one of the two of us was really into films like, I don't know, maybe even The Happening, maybe The Last Airbender, maybe even The Split Glass movies, that recent group of films he's made. But I'm with you. For me, he still has those three really good films, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and then Signs just behind those two. So we're going to have some overlap here for sure on these lists, but maybe not so much overlapping of choices because I agree with you. All three of those movies, let's just pick those three for now, have multiple scenes that are worthy of discussion. Let's start it off with your number five. Well, I really did try to fit the happening in, but uh, I can't quite go that far with Shyamalan Adams. So spoiler there, no happening picks on my list. I did go at number five with a choice from The Visit, and it's the hide-and-seek sequence. Now, The Visit came out in 2015. I think of it as his return to relevancy because just before that were the failed big-budget forays of The Last Airbender and also After Earth. I don't know if you could call the visit a return to form, though, because it's essentially not 100 percent, but mostly a found footage horror movie. So that's something different than the tightly controlled slow burn stuff he had mostly done earlier. The plot here, tween siblings played by Olivia DeYoung and Ed Oxenbold go to stay with their grandparents in rural Pennsylvania for a few days. Grandparents they've never met before. Now, Becca, the older sister, is an aspiring filmmaker, so she records much of their vacation, including these really creepy moments where the grandparents are acting quite strangely. This includes an early moment when the siblings are playing hide and seek in the crawl space. It's beneath the farmhouse porch. So somewhat outside, but also underneath the house and Nana played by Deanna Dunnigan suddenly joins in. Becca. Here I come Tyler. Despite the handheld camera aesthetic, Shyamalan still shows us a masterful handling of tension here while still genuinely shocking us. I mean, we probably are going to expect when this sequence begins, these kids are going to find something creepy, gross, disturbing. We're ready for that. We don't expect Nana 
to suddenly appear in the frame. And we don't expect to see her like feral and, and scurrying in the dirt mm-hmm. after the kids. More animal than grandma. Absolutely. At this point. I think the way the scene ends, too, is a good example of Shyamalan's ability to weave humor into his movies. They all crawl out from under the house. The kids are petrified. Nana just calmly dusts herself off as if this wasn't unusual at all. Cheerily says she's making chicken pot pie. And then we get another quick reversal of mood. We get that visual detail. We see Nana's long skirt has been ripped. And as she walks away, we can see she's not wearing underwear. So just another sort of tension transition, destabilizing us, all going Mm -hmm. on. We start out creepy, get a jump scare, throw in some humor, and then return to a little bit of destabilization there at the end. So I think that's the trajectory of a lot of Shyamalan's best scenes. And that's why I went with hide and seek here at number five. Yeah, it's a really good choice. I remember that scene vividly and being quite disturbed by it when I saw it in the theater. I also have a choice from the visit at number five, though a bit of a different take on creepiness. It does have some of the exact same elements you talked about though, Josh. And I will first note that I even saw last night popping up in terms of reactions to the knock at the cabin premieres and different screenings taking place around the country that this was Shyamalan's return to form Shyamalan's back. It's his big comeback. It's like, didn't we do this already? Do we do this every 10 years with this guy? I thought the visit was, this is what people are saying about knock at the cabin. I saw that. Oh, wow. I saw it in multiple places. My scene from the visit is those aren't your grandparents. (laughs) The kids, as you said, Becca and Tyler, they're noticing this very strange behavior. They call their mother, played by Catherine Hahn. They're talking to her like on Skype from the kitchen as evil Pop Pop and evil Nana are outside. There are plenty of jump scares or just scare scares in his movies. You just nailed one. But he can also utterly freak you out very calmly. If I recall correctly, this moment's kind of the twist of this film. There isn't a grand revelation that upends everything. But here, sort of in the middle of the movie, we get this reveal. And I just love his patience and how he doles it out. We actually hear the mom, we hear Hans say, Becca, twice off camera. And you can just tell from the tone, she's distressed. She's confused. We really want to hear what she's going to say next, but we can't even see her because the laptop is moving at that point and the kids keep talking over her. It's like 30 seconds from the moment she sees the truth. She sees evil Nana and evil Pop Pop and the moment where she finally tells them the truth. Becca, they've been acting so strange, Mom, we've been recording them. Becca, I kept telling Becca something was wrong, didn't I? And Becca, Tyler. Nana walks around at night with a knife. And Pop and, and, and Pop had a gun in his mouth. Tyler. He was trying to hurt himself. Becca, Tyler, babies, I, I need you to listen to me very carefully. Becca, Tyler, just listen to me. We are. Those aren't your grandparents. What are you talking about, Mom? Shyamalan lets the audience not just experience this revelation with them, but try to process it with them. All of the ramifications of it, the level of threat, what 
they could possibly do next to try to get out of this scenario. It's such a still but extremely creepy scene. And it's also dialogue driven more than camera driven. But I still think it's a fun one visually. We do get a little bit of a jump scare as Han is trying to reach the police and the grandmother appears suddenly at the window. And Tyler has to quickly end the call when Evil Pop Pop appears in the kitchen and he whip pans his sister's camera to the right to capture whatever it is that he's going to say and do next. And then when we hear Evil Nana come in the room, Becca looks down at the camera and pans left. She has to steer the camera to capture this action. And it is Shyamalan's take on found footage horror, as you noted. So what does he do? He makes his protagonist the super smart, budding documentarian. So her attention to craft allows Shyamalan to maybe exhibit a greater attention to craft, or at least a more polished look than we might expect. We talked about this movie. We both did recommend it. I think it's a little too clever for its own good by the end, a little over-calculated with all of the callbacks in the last 10 minutes or so. But I do really like how the movie wants to play with the idea of narrative constructs and modes of seeing. So you have lots of lenses and you get it even in this scene, right? Like the camera is on the two kids on the left side of the frame, the laptops with the mom on the right. And then there's a window with Tyler in that laptop window, the window behind them where evil Nana appears. Lots of layers that Shyamalan likes to throw in to keep us on our toes. Yeah, and the fact that that laptop can move around is part of the, I'll use that word again, destabilization of mm-hmm. this scene. Um, we don't know, we're worried about the grandparents coming in and catching them. And because they keep moving with the laptop, the threat mm-hmm. angles constantly change. So it is, yeah, in one sense, it's it's a video call scene, but it's also much more dynamic than that. And I also think you're right to describe it as, a, in my memory as well, as a reveal scene rather than mm-hmm. a twist scene, right. which has a different suspense experience attached to it. Watching this one again, getting ready for this list, knowing what the answer was, it was interesting because I was almost a little impatient with Catherine Hahn, as you as you described. Like, right. tell them right now yeah. what you just realized so they can act. But as a first-time viewer, you need it to be drawn out you that do. way. And that's what he is playing. That, that's how he's toying with the audience exactly. in this sequence. But just think about how destabilizing that line is. Even if you'd never seen the movie even if you really had no context whatsoever, you just heard someone say, those aren't your grandparents. Right. <laughs> I mean, you just can't really process that. You can't fathom something that would more throw you than having to consider the ramifications of that. Whatever the particular context, that is not good information to get. Probably. No, it's yeah. not. <laughs> okay. For number four, I am going with another more recent Shyamalan film. I don't know if this one was considered a return to form at the time. Old. Uh, I think it probably got less glowing reviews than The Visit did. I did like it, though. And the scene I'm choosing is I Want to Be Here Right Now. Now, Old was, I think of Old as Shyamalan swinging for the fences again with a crazy concept. Yeah, The the Visit had that to a degree. Um But previous to old, he had taken that foray into his unbreakable universe with Split and Glass. So 
you know, inventive but familiar terrain. Here he's back to the high concepts of the sixth sense, of signs, of the village, and yeah, even of Lady in the Water. In old, Gail Garcia Bernal and Vicky Creeps play a couple. They're about to get divorced, but first they want to take their young kids on this luxury tropical vacation. They get there and the hotel offers this excursion to a secluded beach. So they and a number of other guests head out there, soon discover they're trapped, and bizarrely start aging. I think it's like about a year every 30 minutes or so on this beach. So from that point, all sorts of, I think I've used this term before, but Shyamalanigans ensue, you know, some pretty <laughs> wild stuff. There's a pregnancy. I, I don't want to even go there. <laughs> Not all of it actually works. But what I like about Old, one of the things I like about it is the way he keeps the emotional focus on this couple played by Creeps and Bernal. And the way they, as excellent actors are up to the challenge of finding human moments amidst all the Shyamalanigans. And I think this culminates in a late scene where they've aged at this point. They're quite old. They're sitting together on the beach. They're diminished in their sight, in their hearing, even in their memory, you get the sense. And I like the touch how they're, they're even talking very loudly to each other as, you know, older couples tend to do. I should have said something when I saw it. I hide from everything. I'm a This was no one's responsibility but me. Your anger should be aimed at me, just me. There's no place I want to be but with you. Do you believe me? I want to be here. Right now. There's not a ton to the filmmaking here, but like your pick from the visit, Adam, I think if you look at it more closely, you see some of the particular choices being made that are very effective. It's mostly a shot reverse shot situation, but he does blur the image at times as they look at each other, you know, just kind of capturing that sense of losing your sight a little bit. Um, And I, you know, especially now that I fully succumbed to a life with reading glasses, I appreciate that. little dose of reality he adds there. I think the writing is solid in this scene and the acting, the acting is even better. As I said, Creeps and Gail Garcia Bernal, just fantastic. So if old is, it's about mortality. I think ultimately this moment is a lovely little grace note. You've got this couple who's found contentment in their final moments together after weathering many storms. And that's, you know, the sort of moment you don't get in, I don't think a lot of filmmakers would take the time to put that moment in a movie as bonkers as old. I'll confess, I didn't do my homework and watch this scene before starting to record because I've never seen old and I didn't want to spoil it, even though I know deep down in my heart, there's really no chance I'm going to ever make time for this movie. And I know you liked it. You recommended it on the show. I know that there are others out there. I just looked 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. So overall, critics didn't love the film. There wasn't a majority of critics anyway, who really went for it. But especially that cast, you would think I would want to see this movie. And I kind of do. But I just am realistic, Josh, about the possibility of it. Well, and I don't think watching this scene out of context would would help either. Because you, you really do need... It's... it's uh, I'll say this. It's where the concept that you're going to live a life in this afternoon at the beach doesn't work 
in every scenario that he presents. But it does work because, again, the quality of the acting, we know what this couple is, where they're at when we first meet them. So we follow their journey all the way through. I think it works best with them. I don't think it would work just as dropping mm-hmm. it, you know, on YouTube and taking a quick look. So probably for the best. Okay, let's get bravura finally with my number four M. Night Shyamalan moment. And I'm going from the movie that was ostensibly his return to form to the movie where the form started to slip, at least for me. It's The Village. And my recollection of watching The Village, I know I've said this before on the show at some point, is that I was enjoying it until the twist, until the end. I don't think we've really talked about this movie, and I haven't seen it since its release. We're definitely not going to dive into it now. But I thought the implication of the ending was provocative. I just also thought it was profoundly absurd, enough to change my whole point of view on the movie. Any other filmmaker, you would think, if you have to write in a character saying a line about no-fly zones to sell it, maybe the concept needs to be rethought. Not Shyamalan. He's he's going straight ahead. Whether it's fair or not, I felt like, okay, this is this is Shyamalan forcing himself to continue the streak of blowing our minds with twists. And well, this time he he just blew it. I'll give credit to listeners on social for reminding me of this scene though, because otherwise I might have overlooked the village because of my feelings about the ending. Kevin Pritchell on Twitter just posted a screenshot of this scene. It's the image of Bryce Dallas Howard's hand extending from the left side of the frame into the dark. It's lit by the glow of a lantern in the top left of the frame. There's a string of lights in the distance diagonally dotting the top of the frame. When I saw it, I couldn't place it, but I knew it was beautiful. And this is the he will come back to make sure we are safe moment from the village. The context of this scene and the film itself, I don't think is really crucial. I'll say it's Howard, who's blind, her sister, played by Judy Greer and Adrian Brody's character, Noah, who pines for her. They're in the house. She's in love with Joaquin Phoenix's character, Lucius, and this beast figure in a red cloak is lurking around the house. Ivy, that's Howard's character, is waiting for Lucius. Sure, he'll return. And as the other two hide, she puts out her hand. Lucius is going to grab it any second and come back for them. Except it seems like she's made a mistake. The beast is coming, not Lucius. The lighting and the focus here are so great. And of course they are. Guess who shot it? Roger Deakins. We hear a little bit of snarling in the sound design coming closer to us. The red cloak is almost like an apparition in the back of the frame, the darkness of the frame. And it only becomes more visible as it gets closer to her hand. The camera work is really subtle here because as the beast is approaching, the camera is also moving closer towards her and it, towards her trembling hand. So it gives it this sense of the cloak and this beast almost enveloping her out of nowhere. But just before it's too late, of course, Lucius grabs Ivy's hand, spins her inside 
in slow motion as that James Newton Howard score soars. It's so good. The filmmaking there is so good, almost dialogue-free, that it makes me want to forgive any talk of no-fly zones. All right, you lamented that you weren't going to get any defenses of some of his more absurd films. Well, here it comes. I love The Village. I know you do. And I would put it, it's not up in that tier with the the three I mentioned, but I think it has moments where it is there. This is one of them. Um, and I love the bonkersness of it. When I wrote about it, I think I said the twist was the best thing about the movie because some of the stuff, it was a wide, the variance was wide in this one, right? There are moments like the one you described and there are others that you you ask yourself, is this the same filmmaker? So it's uneven, but I did think the idea behind the twist was incredible. And here's just a bit of advice. If you want to come on over to the Shyamalan dark side, you've got to accept the absurd. You're right. This is a guy who's going to push it. If someone, you get the sense of someone says to him, gives him a note about whatever fly zones or something. It's, it doesn't matter. He's so, he's so infatuated with the idea and the ideas that spring from the idea. I think that's part of it. And that's maybe what elevates his best films are the ones where there's some bonkers notion. There's something absurd. We're going to have to accept it. And will those open the door to other ideas or things to think about, or do they not? Some of his films do not. And for me, those are maybe the lesser ones, but The Village for me does. And it is, as you described in this particular sequence, that the red cloak in the background, that is sort of when you you draw your breath in, right? Mm-hmm. Because maybe we've seen variations on one hand outstretched waiting for another. And that is a moment of visual tension. That's familiar. But then to add that third element in the background, these are the sorts of choices that can set him apart as a formal filmmaker. And a lot of the scenes we're talking about and others that people mentioned on social, I think that's that's a good question to ask is, what would an average filmmaker, how would they have set this up and it would have been effective, right? But these are the scenes where there's mm-hmm. some extra choice yes. or element being made that does separate it. And I think this is well, this is a good example in The Village. It's a really good point. And it ties back to Shyamalan and his endeavor as a filmmaker as well. And we may talk about this a little bit more when we finally get to Knock at the Cabin. It's a character exhibiting blind faith, right? Yeah. It's stunning visually that that image of the hand, but it's also a character knowing that there's something terrible outside, knowing that it might get her, but so believing in the man she loves that she's going to go ahead and put that hand out there and she knows it's going to be reciprocated. All right, let's move to my number three, which is when I'm finally getting to one of the big hitter Shyamalan films, at least for me, and it comes from signs. We aren't saying a prayer. As I said, I do think this is, I think this is his other great movie. I'd put this up there just after The Sixth Sense. And there's a brilliant scene from Signs that I think probably was mentioned the most by listeners on social media when we asked for suggestions. I'm going to save that for an honorable mention. I'm not sure if you have it, Adam. It's probably the one people are thinking about. But for me, the scene from Signs is we aren't saying a prayer. This is the dinner table moment where Mel Gibson's Graham Hess, he's a former priest who's given up on his faith after the death of his wife, he refuses to offer a prayer before dinner. At the table are his two young kids, Rory Culkin and Abigail Breslin, and then his brother, played by Joaquin Phoenix. What's the matter with everyone? Eat. 
Maybe we should say a prayer. No. Why not? We're not saying a prayer. Bo has a bad feeling. I had a dream. We aren't saying a prayer. Eat. So as you just hinted at, Adam, mentioning blind faith, spirituality runs through much of Shyamalan's work. And it's definitely a key theme in Signs. I mean, this is an alien invasion thriller, but it's also about fate. It's about providence. It's about belief. All of these things. The tragedy of this sequence, though, is that Graham is so entrenched in his battle with God, he refuses to offer his kids this familiar comfort of a dinnertime prayer. He can't even fake it for their Mm -hmm. benefit. So it's, you know, it's a failure as a father in this moment, if nothing else. I am not wasting one more minute of my life on prayer. Not one more minute. Understood? Now we are going to enjoy this meal. No one can stop us from enjoying this meal, so enjoy it! Stop crying! Don't yell at her! Now, when Shyamalan was riding high, and I think you could say this was still about the time he was, there were a lot of comparisons to Spielberg and signs clearly a variation on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I've talked about Spielberg's brilliant handling of family dinner scenes. I think this is absolutely a nod to those. I don't know how conscious it might have been for Shyamalan, but I do think Graham even plunges into some mashed potatoes here when he starts Mm -hmm. angrily trying to eat all the food. Pretty sure I saw mashed potatoes on the plate. I also like the little laugh moment we get at the end. This goes back to what I was saying about the use of humor. The kids come to hug Graham while he's distraught and crying. So he accepts their hugs, pulls them closer, and then, you know, Phoenix is sitting there at the end of the table, kind of the odd person out. Graham just reaches out, pulls him into the pile, somewhat reluctantly pulls him into the pile too for a big hug. So another scene that's, you know, beautifully written, acted and, and imagined Um, there's, you know, nothing too fancy with the camera work, some crucial pushes in or pulls back. Um, But for all those other reasons, for me, it's one of Shyamalan's best. It's a really good scene. And part of what makes it so good is unfortunately, how familiar it feels. Now, it's a movie moment in terms of the writing, obviously, the acting. It's it's presentational, and it's not naturalistic, I would say. And I've never had a conversation at my dinner table of such cosmic and tragic proportions, knock on wood. But, I mean, how many of us have been there as a father where you're trying to lay down the law about something. You're getting questioned on it. So what do you do? You just lean in even harder and everybody ends up in tears or angry or upset. It happens. It's part of being a dad. We just saw a variation of this in White Noise, remember? <laughs> With Adam yeah. Driver. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's true. This is the Spielberg element, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Spielberg is the filmmaker. I'm going to mention him again in just a moment, who gets brought up the most with Shyamalan. There's one other. I'm going to mention that filmmaker here as well in a moment. But I thought about Close Encounters. I'm jumping ahead once again to knock at the cabin. But I thought about Close Encounters with that film and with a lot of the scenes I was watching when I was making my list, especially with Knock at the Cabin. You've got four characters who have all had a vision. They sound an awful lot like Roy, don't Mm -hmm. they? In Close Encounters, they've all had a vision and they have to seek it out. They're obsessive just like him. Okay, for my number three, we're going from my first pick, my number five, which is very low-key visually, characters talking, dialogue and performances are the star. My number four was more about Shyamalan as a visual stylist. So this segues, hopefully, nicely into my number three and a little bit more how I approached the list. 
which really does encompass the three elements you talked about. I think I'm just splitting them into more of a dichotomy of those quieter, intimate character dialogue moments and the more bravura filmmaking. When I started this list, I knew I was going to have picks from those three favorite Shyamalan movies. So I knew I would have a scene from Signs. I had a different scene in mind than the one I ultimately am going with, which we may get to later, but it was more like the visit pick, Josh. It was a very hushed scene, no real camera fireworks at all, pretty conventionally shot, two characters having an intimate moment, intimate in their physical proximity to each other, in their manner of speaking even, kind of whispering the nature of the information that's being shared. And then I I realized looking at those three picks on paper that if I stayed with that scene and that order, my top three choices would all be those types of moments. And I did get a glimpse at your list. And I'll just say that you were of a similar mind. And that speaks to the pleasure we derive from his movies. But I did feel that a list too dominated by those types of scenes maybe isn't truly representative of what Shyamalan is capable of as a filmmaker. If you go back to August 2002, when Signs came out, I don't know if you remember this, there was a Newsweek cover that had Shyamalan on it and said, the next Spielberg. Yeah. Now he's not, but he sure is obsessed with fractured family units and obsessed characters. And he is... Absolutely. When he's on, he's absolutely able to manipulate an audience with the same mastery that Spielberg does. I remember watching signs in the theater in 02, and my sense was that he was playing all of us like a conductor. The audience was full and we laughed. We cried. We felt terrified. We cheered in unison. I'm exaggerating, obviously, to make a point, but it was almost like if you were filming a dystopia scene where you were trying to show hundreds of people under the influence of some kind of mind control. That's what we were like watching signs in that theater in O2. One of the scenes I remember being vividly aware of Shyamalan's puppet mastery was the pantry scene. Mel Gibson's Graham has just been told by Shyamalan's character, actually a guy named Ray who was involved in the accident that killed his wife that there's an alien trapped. I think it's in Ray's kitchen. I think he's at Ray's house. And he he enters, the chairs and tables are turned over. Even Shyamalan's filming of Gibson's entrance is dramatic. <laughs> the way he walks into the frame slowly, he slowly turns and he pauses before stepping forward. For part of it, he's in a shadow, which adds this further sense of mystery to it. He actually moves kind of like Shyamalan's camera would. And I just realized I was thinking about Spielberg in the end of the Fablemans there with that angle. But it's at the door exactly where Gibson's character is going to be in a moment, what he's going to be coming towards, what he's scared of. Under the door... We see just the shadow of movement. We hear some rustling. It's suspenseful. We're on edge, just like Graham is. But Shyamalan here is also going to get a laugh out of us. That voice he uses, talking to whoever he thinks is in the pantry, it's like a character from a gangster movie. The police are here. I'm with them. I am a police officer. I just want to talk with you. We know all about the hoax. 
We already took some of your friends downtown in a paddy wagon. That paddy wagon line, I remember drawing a big laugh. You get some veiling here where Shyamalan hides parts of the frame from us and the character. That adds another element of mystery. He bends down to peer underneath the door. The camera seems to be inside on the ground, but there's no movement. There's no sound. Cut as Gibson stands up. The camera's now above him looking down. And in the foreground are pieces of some vegetables. I love how the camera pans slowly in unison with Gibson's eyes as he sees what's next to the vegetables, a big knife. We're locked into his point of view here, and he grabs the knife, cut again, camera's back by the pantry door. Great use of cutting on sound. In the first cut, Gibson's jacket, as he stands up, rustles a bit, and then the sound of him grabbing the knife off the counter as he turns, cutting on exactly that moment. And you're watching going, well, obviously, he grabbed the knife for protection, right? A little bit of misdirection here by Shyamalan, and more reflection and more ways of seeing He is thinking about it for protection, except he catches some sunlight reflected in the knife and he sees himself and he has an idea. He decides to slip the knife under the door so he can try to see whatever is in there. The way he surveys the scene with the knife, any moment, right? We just know something is going to appear. There's going to be a jump scare and we're all going to jump. But Shyamalan being the prankster again, nothing happens. It deflates us for a moment, and the camera just sits there down on the floor as Gibson, scared, walks away. But of course the camera stays there because we know he's coming back, which he does, the suspense building more and more. And then what happens? Claws. Giant claws appear from under the door. Gibson cuts them with a knife. We get the violence we were expecting all along. On the scream, on sound again, he cuts to the flock of birds fleeing. Clearly a reference there has to be to Hitchcock and the birds. And he just, even rewatching it again, I had all those feelings, Josh, like I did back in the theater. Shyamalan has us in the palm of his hand. Almost no dialogue, all pacing, camera placement, camera angles, camera movement, blocking and editing. And actually, even though it's not a moment between two characters and Gibson has almost nothing to say, it's also about performance. Yeah, I, that moment Gibson looks at the reflection in the knife and his eyes just dart up. We're looking mm-hmm. at him in the knife at this point. We see his eyes in the knife dart up back at the closet. That's when we realize what he realizes, what you just described. This could yes. be a tool as a mirror, too. Yeah, as you're describing it, you know, this is to his credit, I think, but Shyamalan draws out such scenes longer mm-hmm. than a more efficient perhaps filmmaker would but when he's at his best it works to his advantage by doing that and it's not just simply making us wait longer it's because the extended choices well now i'm going to do this in this moment and now i'm gonna you know add this shot which does draw out more tension or suspense this scene you just described could have been a 22nd moment right could have been and and people would have screamed and talked about Remember when that claw came out from under the pantry door, right? Everyone probably would have been satisfied. But by making all the choices you described, extending the scene, it becomes something that's much more experiential and rich and inventive. It heightens everything. And it also connects you to the character in a way that you almost can't be aware of. When you're talking about a film and your experience with the film, you can't really articulate this or add up the moments. But- It's those types of connections, the shared 
point of view, seeing the reflection and having the realization along with the character, feeling in the moment like you would be behaving the same way he is. You'd go up to the door, you'd have a moment of courage, but then you might step away, but then you'd have to come back. Those are all things that affect your entire experience with the film because of your alignment with the character in moments just like this one. We're going to have more great Shyamalan moments in just a bit. We will remind you that you can view all of our top five lists, our picks, and if we have scenes to go with them, you can watch them at filmspotting.net slash lists. We do want to take a moment here, Josh, to thank everyone who gave us a rating or positive review over the past week on Apple Podcasts or over at Spotify. Yeah, these ratings, also your word of mouth recommendations, they're the best way to introduce the show to new listeners. So we're very grateful whenever you do that. We want to thank in particular the following who have left reviews over the past week. Mind of a Monkey, Joel Carpenter, 007, Andrew Corsini in the UK, Blake Hamilton, Bill McLaughlin in Canada, Dr. Ellis, and Bear Hugger 2020. Thanks to all of you. Alas, no scatological references this week, Josh, but I'm going to give our listeners another chance next week. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and, as you see, perfectly harmless looking when, in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. More M. Night Shyamalan top five talk is ahead. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit about what we have on tap for next week's show. You just heard, appropriately, a little bit of Alfred Hitchcock on the set of Psycho. Hitchcock's iconic 1960 film is one of those in contention for a top seed in this year's Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 60s. That's not entirely accurate. It really is a top seed. It's in the top four right now, and I don't see that changing. It's in contention to win the whole thing, potentially, as one of those top seeds. So Madness is approaching. Last year around this time, when we were getting close to Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 70s in that bracket, we took a look at The Godfather. It also worked because it was a 50th anniversary of the Godfather, but our producer Sam thought maybe we should look at one of those top seeds, do a bit of a sacred cow review of one of those films. One of the movies that will be in the running for best film of the sixties. And we all agreed last week, Josh, when we were talking about it, the psycho would be a really good pick, but we could go a lot of different directions as well. Yeah, I think we talked about uh, Dr. Strangelove. Maybe the reason we shied away from that is we've given Kubrick a lot of sacred cow treatment over the years. Mm -hmm. 2001, Clockwork Orange, The Shining, even Eyes Wide Shot, though that was part of our 9 from 99 series. Some other 60s films we considered revisiting Rosemary's Baby, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The Graduate, though, that's one I think you and Sam did way back in the new Maddie, Hollywood Marathon. 254, yeah. That was with Maddie. Okay. Mm -hmm. The Apartment, you've previously covered in your Wilder Marathon. And then Lawrence of Arabia, that is one we did do a Sacred Cow review of together. Also talked about our top five David Lean moments. That's in episode 698. So we've given some significant 60s films a lot of attention here on the show, but have not talked in depth about Psycho yet. Yeah, we haven't. So is that where 
your head remains? Do you think Psycho would be the most interesting film for us to pluck out of those 60s contenders and discuss on the show? I think so, just because it's similar to The Godfather. And I think our initial thought in that case was, who needs to hear us talk about The Godfather? Everyone talks about The Godfather, right? And it was incredibly rewarding, at least for both of us, not just to watch, but to wrestle with once more. Think about in the current context, so much so, as you said, we did, I think it was a bonus show, right, on The Godfather mm-hmm. Part Two. We were that sucked in. So you could say the same thing about Psycho is a movie that's probably been analyzed even more than The Godfather, perhaps. Uh, certain scenes absolutely have been, the shower scene. So maybe we should stay away with it, but no. I don't I don't want to. I haven't had a chance to talk about it with you and mm-hmm. see what your reaction is. Look at it in our current context. Um, you know, having put to to bed this horror book that's coming out this year, I have been thinking about Psycho a little bit recently. And so it's on top of mind for me. And I'd I'd like to kind of stay there and re-examine one of Hitchcock's best with you. Well, right now, that is what we are going to do next week here on Film Spotting, a sacred cow conversation about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I think we're also going to get to some of our Oscars homework. We've been trying to watch a few things, some blind spots there as we lead up to the Academy Awards. If you're in the Chicago area, we wanted to let you know that there's an advanced screening of the movie of an age. It opens in Chicago on February 17th. There's a screening a couple of nights before Wednesday, February 15th. It's a film set in Australia in 1999 about a 17 year old Serbian born ballroom dancer who has an unexpected and intense 24 hour romance with a friend's older brother. The film's director, Goran Stolensky, made last year's Macedonia set horror movie. You won't be alone. Is that in your horror book, Josh? Haven't got to that one, I'm afraid. More information about the Oven Age screening, and if you would like to enter for free passes, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash events. Quick note about what's happening over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's part two of their A Crime to Remember pairing. This week, they're looking at the new Saint-Omer from director Alice Diop. That made my top 10 list. It is excellent, and they've been considering it alongside Richard Brooks in Cold Blood, the adaptation of Truman Capote's best-selling nonfiction novel. So if you want to hear discussion of one of the best films from last year and also ties into madness in Cold Blood 67, I think. I believe so. If you need to do some film spotting madness homework and want to catch up with In Cold Blood and then listen to the next picture show folks talk about that you can do that this week it's an inspired pairing and we'd expect nothing less from the great folks over at the next picture show i love the connection of the writers there who are processing the crime and their relationship to the people who committed those crimes being such significant parts of both films if you would like to hear those conversations about a crime to remember you can do that wherever you get your podcast new shows post every tuesday It is time for some Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. Now, Adam, we have some big shoes to fill, some actual theater that was done at our live show. The live edition of Massacre Theater was the last one we played. We were treated to this at our year-end wrap party. Really good. We got into it in our discussion of the live show and how much fun we had. Blank Checks, Griffin Newman, Broadway's own Jeff Heimbrock doing a great scene from the Fablemans. And yeah, they were too good. They ruined Massacre Theater forever. So let's bring it back down to the lows where it belongs. 
Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. This should be a fun one. We're changing one name here, though I'm not sure that we need to because it's probably going to be a fairly obvious scene. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I think this will be one people get pretty quickly. I have an acting tip for you in the context oh. of of uh, one of our picks we were talking about. You know, my uh-huh. dinner table scene. For your part, put on your best dad at dinner voice. Okay. I think that I think that might help you. So. <laughs> Let's start it off. You have the first line. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? All right. And action. Malachi, baby, what's happening? How's the weather up top? The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Well, you, you're you doing a great job out there. By the numbers, man, you got to start it off just right. So we'll talk to you later, okay? Their blind eyes see nothing of the horrors to come. Their ears are stopped. They are the gods' fools. Well, that's how it works. Cleanse them. Cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. Bathe them in the crimson of... Am I on speakerphone? <laughs> and scene. Yeah, maybe my tip wasn't helpful. I, I it wasn't helpful. I, I, I heard you don't talk tip. like that at dinner. I heard Director Larson's tip and I said, nope, I'm <laughs> leaning into the creepiness. <laughs> I I had a plan, and I was sticking to my plan. Well done. Well done. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, February 13th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. My name's Leonard. It's nice to meet you, Will. Why are you here? I suppose I'm here to make friends with you. And your dad's too. But my heart is broken. Why is it broken? Because of what I have to do today. Let's get back to M. Night Shyamalan now with some thoughts on his new one, Knock at the Cabin. It opens wide this weekend. It's his 15th feature set at a remote cabin. A young girl and her parents are taken hostage by four strangers who force the family to make an impossible choice in order to avert the apocalypse. It's an adaptation of the 2018 novel The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge are the dads. Kristen Soy is the daughter. The hostage takers? They're Dave Batista, Rupert Grint, Run! Exactly. Nikki Amuka-Bird and Abby Quinn. Now, As I mentioned, Josh, Knock at the Cabin is the relatively rare Shyamalan film and that it's based on an existing work. Two of his least successful efforts were adaptations. The Last Airbender, based on the Nickelodeon series, and After Earth, which was based on a story suggested by the film star Will Smith. The other is his previous film, 2021's Old. That was an adaptation of a 2013 graphic novel. As we noted earlier, mostly worked for you didn't necessarily work for most critics, but having taken the time now to really consider the best of Shyamalan and your own position on Shyamalan with our poll question, would you say after seeing Knock at the Cabin that he might be better off sticking with his own 
original material, or has he turned a corner and proven that he can adapt with the best of them? I mean, I think his original material allows him to go full Shyamalan and you never go the full shot and, and in a way that pays dividends um you know despite liking old a little more than most people i don't have it anywhere near the tier of his best original stuff but old is also you know my instinct would be to say well his wildest films are the more original ones but i think old probably has one of the wildest concepts uh, of any of his movies and that's taken from something else this is Knock at the Cabin is pretty wild, I would say, though this is what I'm curious to hear from you about, is was there a lot of suspense here regarding this central premise? And we are obviously not going to get into explicit spoilers. Um, I don't even know if we want to talk about the the details of the choice the family has to make, but did their predicament... Was that something you found suspenseful as you watched this movie and tried to gauge who do you believe? Do you believe what these hostage takers are saying? Do you believe the scenarios that are being presented? Also, a question I have for you is, um, you know, do you believe the transition the characters make, and particularly Jonathan Groff's character, in wavering in terms of his own belief with the hostage takers and his husband played by Ben Aldridge. That, that's what I was thinking about while watching this and was eager to talk to you about. Yeah, it's tough because, as you said, we can't get into it as much as we would like to and really hash this out because it would spoil the movie. I think Shyamalan mostly effectively gives us the breadcrumbs so that when we see a bit of a turn in that character's perspective, it doesn't seem like it's out of nowhere. Okay. I do think Groff has the really unglamorous part here. He actually is concussed at one point, and it's as if Shyamalan did that so he could justify having one of the dads, Aldridge, be really fiery and passionate and of one kind of volume and have the other guy be a counter to that. <laughs> He's got a head injury, so he kind of just sits there and looks confused most of the time. I don't know if it's the best use of Jonathan Groff, <laughs> but then again, maybe it is the best use well, of but, Jonathan Groff. But there's also, like, that's part of his disorientation is... Yes. As his perception shifts, there's the open question of, well, is it because he's been concussed? But I get your point. Well, it's, it, exactly. Yeah. And, and also, it's there to, I'll use your word because I like it a lot, I think Shyamalan does this, to destabilize the audience further. If we're processing this movie through those characters' eyes and we're trying to make sense of what they believe and then what we believe, if one of the characters has a head injury, he's he's unreliable. So it's clearly there from a screenwriting standpoint as well. I don't think Knock at the Cabin, I think to answer your question, for me, one of my issues with the film is that it's maybe not wild enough. And I didn't have the suspense I really needed in terms of what was going to happen to these characters. The only suspense was, how is M. Night Shyamalan, the screenwriter, going to end this? That was really the only suspense. And sometimes that's compelling. It wasn't compelling enough here for me. This is definitely a Shyamalan movie. You understand why he would adapt it and you see what he wanted to present. It's not just in form, but it's basically... The signs, is it possible that there are no coincidences seen, played out over the course of the entire movie, minus, and this is a big minus, 
that there is no one watching out for us opposition that we get at the end of that monologue or at the end of that exchange between Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix in Signs. I struggled with this, Josh, and I want to hear if that's where you came out as well or if you're more forgiving. Like its band of zealots, Shyamalan's movie is insistently menacing with a patina of compassion and empathy. I believed Batista and company, not so much Shyamalan himself. I didn't buy that compassion and empathy that he was trying to sell. Yeah, I think that's fair. And in those areas, which we've praised in his other films, the characterization, the performances, I think it's a little thin, though I like Bautista a lot here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm where I'm at now. And we just saw this last night. Uh, I did like it, but it's definitely, you know, sort of the visit old, maybe even a little lower tier where it's not entirely successful, but it's definitely engaging to your point about the um, not being thoroughly surprised. And it could have been wilder. I agree with you. Though I did like how he chose to end this, which actually brings us circles back to the emotional element that isn't really strong except for me to the final moments. And it was almost as if there was a choice to not go last minute twist, but go last minute emotion. And that actually worked for me in a way that surprised me. So I think that's one reason I left the theater in a higher place than I might've been while watching this. I think some of the spirituality slash theology is a little thin. I want to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's obviously playing, it's getting its apocalyptic elements from the book of revelation, but I think it's borrowed and not thought through as much as it is in something like signs. So I think that is absolutely a fair point. Um, but I, I also kind of just liked how he used Bautista. First of all, Bautista is really good in the way that he he knows how to move. And this is a guy who's gone from, you know, WWE to being a crucial presence in movies like Guardians of the Galaxy, Blade Runner 2049, and then recently Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion. Different sorts of performances in each of those. And what I appreciated here is how he knows how to move this giant, mm-hmm. massive body within the frame in a way that is at once threatening and particularly for this Leonard character who keeps apologizing that they've brought this upon the family. There is a gentleness here and he expresses that through his voice that it's an obvious dichotomy, but I think Bautista knows how to play it really well. This is a threat who you always also feel like you could hug in a way. And I think that works well for the movie. And then I think as far as a filmmaker, Shyamalan has so much fun with having this sort of figure to play with. I think of the one shot where the two dads, they're both tied up in separate chairs. We're looking at them as Bautista's looking at them from behind his head. And his head is so massive mm-hmm. that what Shyamalan does is in the left side of the frame, we see one of the dads. And then the right side is just Bautista's head, which is cutting off our ability to see the other dad and then Shyamalan cuts and shifts it. So we cut to the other side and there we see the dad on the right hand, Bautista's head is on the left hand of the frame. And it's just this use of, again, Bautista's frame, but also to separate them Mm -hmm. emotionally, psychologically to hint at this divide that is developing that we've already talked about. And so, you know, even in a mid tier Shyamalan movie, like knock at the cabin, you're going to get a moment like that 
that speaks to what we've been talking about in our list, just particular choices being made that emphasize the inherent tension in the setup. It's not just happy with the setup, but what can I do using this actor, using this angle, and getting the most out of this particular scene? Just a tiny moment, but effective and fun in the way Shyamalan often is. And as you talk about Batista's head filling the frame, it often does in this film. A lot of characters faces do he really relies here on extreme close-ups and i think mostly to the film's advantage i think those close-ups are effective especially in bridging those human moments that we've touched on Shyamalan is usually very good at and there are some good ones here but you got at something that i wanted to dive into a little bit more and this is your corner josh not mine I want to know, I'll give you my thoughts, but I want to know what you make of Shyamalan's quite clear-eyed, faith-based approach to his films. It's not just that he said it, if anyone's seen some interviews with him or whatever in the past, you know it from these films and the material and what they want to wrestle with. I think usually there's more wrestling, as I mentioned with a movie like Signs, than we actually get here. I said that patina of compassion and empathy. Killing you with kindness is still killing you. <laughs> and that's that's where Shyamalan is as a filmmaker, I think. He presents, through his film, he presents as progressive and enlightened and humanist. But the film, to me, is a testament to a pretty rigid worldview of order, a call for order, and suffering and sacrifice, all in service to a higher power. And all of that with a heavy dose of apocalyptic doom and destruction. <laughs> what's, what's more biblical than that? The end is nigh. Repent. And so we get a film that is part Cabin in the Woods, part Funny Games, part Jordan Peele's Us. I'm pretty sure I even referenced Shyamalan and his influence on Peele when we reviewed Us. All three of those, I think, are better films. And Jordan Peele in particular... He might just be a better filmmaker than Shyamalan is, but he also has another advantage to me that I feel after watching Knock at the Cabin, and that's that Peel's unencumbered. <laughs> Peel's not selling anything. He doesn't have a message to impart. He's got questions. Shyamalan has answers. Wow, you're you're making him sound like way more of an evangelist than I, I ever considered him to that be. That was my takeaway from the film. Oh boy, I don't want him preaching at me because this, this is um, this is Nor did um, I. as I said, this is like um, to my mind awfully thin. In that, I don't know that this movie ever really hints at any sort of higher power, as you say. It's mostly plucking um, these apocalyptic elements, and the closest we get as to reasoning are references to sin of humanity. I mean, it's it's very uh, hell and brimstone yes, sort of but there's preaching. A, there's an order and structure to the universe. Yeah. And a desire for a lack of chaos that, that doesn't come from science. It comes from a higher power. Yeah. That's, that's the idea. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know, I, I, to me, it seems like that stands a little bit apart from his other movies, which are more about the nature of belief, I guess, than any sort of order or punishment mm -hmm. or, um, you know, there's, again, just saw it last night. There's not really much grace in this movie. Uh, maybe you can no, find it in that final 
mm-hmm. in that final moment I won't spoil, but I referred to, and maybe that's why that moment hit me. Um, because otherwise, again, this is just plucking from these apocalyptic elements. And maybe this brings us back to the adaptation question. Maybe this is more something that's prominent in the novel well, and Sha- Shyamalan is just kind of giving his his gloss on it because yeah the spirituality of knock at the cabin doesn't always track with me with what sort of vague spirituality I've found in the rest of his films I've never thought mm-hmm. of him as a a preachy filmmaker in this sense that's interesting and this I movie never, yeah I didn't find it to be preachy I, I just found it to be kind of thin I didn't find him so preachy either until now. And I agree with you. It's thinness is part of the problem. You mentioned the adaptation going through these thoughts in my head and running through my reaction to it. I had to know the answer to the question you just posed. Does the book end similarly? Does it cover similar ground? Is Shyamalan doing something different or is he just being faithful? No pun intended to the material. And from what I saw, haven't read it, If someone out there has read it and you want to challenge my conclusion, please do. But I don't think anyone will be shocked to learn that its main departure is with the ending. And it isn't just different. Shyamalan's ending is completely antithetical. It's completely antithetical to where the book ends as I see it. And that that distinction is revealing to me, Josh, of of Shyamalan's mission or his objective then. And you, you mentioned the ending. We will dance around at the ending, this end moment. I'm going to contradict myself here, and that's okay. I wish this movie had maybe more contradictions in it. We finally sort of get it there at the end. The moment I know you're referring to, as I watched it, I was hoping that we were going to change our rap party category from best music moment of the year to not just worst music moment of the year, but worst music moment in the history of cinema. Because I've got the winner. I've got the winner. I saw it last night. That was my take watching it. But I do kind of like, I do kind of like how it ultimately plays out. If I hate the initial moment itself, and I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that it really does work. It bothers me more than I like it, but I at least like what he does with it then as it continues to play out. There you go. That There you go. And we've talked about this, how the extension of moments and what he does with that extra time he gives himself. I agree with you. When that music moment started, I I don't know. I was sitting next to you. Did I yeah. outwardly groan? Because I felt like it. <laughs> I didn't hear it. I you, totally you am face. with you there. I mean, worst music moment of all time. That might be getting a little hyperbolic, but but I was like, oh, no. But that's where the movie, that's where the scene starts. And it starts there, I feel, to get that particular reaction from us. It's... Mm-hmm. It's a knowing like this is not what should happen now, but it allows for the other moments employing the music. I should say it's not like it gets away from the music, actively employing the music to get us where we ultimately should be at the end of that scene. Not that it's going to work for everybody, but that's why it did work for me. And it does tie back to this extension idea of how he draws out scenes Fairly masterfully, I think, in this case. That really is the question. We'll end on this. That's really the question with Shyamalan that I still don't have a definitive answer to, though I know where I lean in this spectrum. How in on the joke is he ever? How how truly knowing is he? He's someone who is clearly referential in his film, self-referential, seems self-aware. And yet you can often watch these films and think – 
that he's so earnest and unambiguous and so lacking often, despite there being some moments where you get a good joke or you get a laugh, so lacking in a sense of humor that you see moments like that and go, okay, are you right? If you're being charitable, are you right, Josh, that he knows what he's doing to the audience in that exact moment or or does he not? And I know there's the happening hive out there. I saw you on social media. We're not going to try to unpack that now, but I know that there are people who think he knows exactly what he's doing, especially when it comes to moments that maybe make us a little uncomfortable or awkward or that we're supposed to laugh at. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not with those people on the happening or in general when it comes to Shyamalan. Yeah, for me in this particular case, again, because the use of the music throughout the sequence is so crucial, I feel like it was a strategy that for me pays off. Knock at the Cabin is out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Twitter at Filmspotting, at Larson on Film, or at Facebook at Filmspotting and Larson on Film. We're going to get back to some more Shyamalan praise here. At least I am. I'll feel better doing this, talking about things I love in his movies. We have two more choices left. And not surprisingly, we've already mentioned that we have the same three favorite, different order, it seems. We have the same three favorite Shyamalan films, and we have represented those films nicely here at the top. What's your number two? My number two is the bench press scene from Unbreakable. And here we are just talking about how he can elongate moments to get the most out of them. This, I realize, is yet another example. This is the moment when Bruce Willis's David Dunn comes to realize that he might indeed have superpowers, and he discovers it with the help of his son, played by Spencer Treat Clark. So he's in the basement lifting weights. The sun comes down. And the, the point of this scene is that he can lift a lot of weights, right? Again, another filmmaker would probably knock that out quickly, effectively, move on. That's what the audience needs to know. This becomes... Another instance of familial intimacy, really. You have the son watching his father. He's looking up to him as a man. Maybe this is what he thinks you know you should do if you're a man. This is what I want to do when I'm older. He, he's asking him, how much, how much can you lift? And then they start testing the limits. How much is it? How much is it, Dad? About 350 pounds. So for me, this is one of those examples of the complete control Shyamalan can have as a director in terms of the filmmaking. You've got the pacing of the scene, but also the blocking, the doling out of the information, the perfect camera angles to communicate exactly what he wants to. And just a couple examples here. Consider how we get pushes in or out in what is otherwise a simple scene. The camera moves in on Willis's face when he realizes that his son has added weight, not taken off. Then we get the reverse angle. So behind Willis, he's sitting on the bench and the camera pulls back away from his head to reveal just how many weights there are. And Again, this is not breaking necessarily any cinematic ground, but using the tools to make the most of this moment. There's also the great shot after Willis asks him, you know, now they're, they're bonded. They're, they're in on this. They're going to test what they can find out. And Willis asks his son, what else can we use? Next shot, we see his son 
far away, still on the stairs of the basement. This is dangerous, right? He's told him to back off, adding tension. And then the sun slowly goes out of focus as the bar comes up into the frame in the foreground. And we see that they've duct taped two buckets of paint onto the end. It's a nice little joke, visual joke. It has a little humor there. Again, Mm -hmm. probably the most inventive way you could capture this moment. And the effect, what do you get here? For me, a hugely exciting scene that in its own way, even though it's taking place in this dark basement between a dad and his kid, it's as dynamic as Spider-Man discovering his powers swinging among the skyscrapers. This is Shyamalan's variation of that scene that we're getting, but just in a complete with a completely different approach. Also, how good is Bruce Willis in his mm. movies with Shyamalan? I mean, I he's just the hushed, the quiet, the weariness. Yes. I know people sometimes, you know, say he overplays that. I just love this underplaying tactic that that Willis takes. I think it makes for the perfect again, the Peter Parker opposite here. We're not getting the enthusiastic superhero. We're getting the reluctant, but, you know, becoming interested superhero in this sequence. And it has to do with all those choices I described, but also Willis's performance. There are some actors who play characters who are still perhaps a little bit melancholy as he is, perhaps detached from his own life as he is, who are incredibly boring. And Willis is never boring. No, in this role. It's another scene, too, that's completely about faith. That whole exchange between the son and father and how much can you bench and adding the weight. It's not just about masculinity. The son believes in his father in a way the father doesn't even believe in himself. And over the course of this scene, we see them coming together. My scene is going to then be the the capper to that, Josh. It's going to be the perfect complement to your pick. It's the newspaper nod in Unbreakable. I don't know the last time I saw this movie in its entirety, but I know at some point over the past few years, it was on TV one night or something, and I got caught up in it. And I remember this scene just absolutely wrecking me. I think Spencer Tree Clark and Willis are both even better here than they are in the bench press scene. It's after Willis's character, David, has finally acted on his supernatural abilities. He has saved two kids. He's almost died. He almost drowned in the process. We have water here again, like in signs, being incredibly powerful. The next morning, David's sitting at the table. His son has the newspaper in front of him that clearly his father has put there quite deliberately. The mom is cooking on the stove, I think, in the background. We spy her every now and again. David motions towards the paper. There's a little nod here for his son, Joseph, to look at it. The kid sees the headline, saved, hero, rescues two children. Close up on the son's face, putting it all together. The realization that James Newton Howard score again. So good. Cut to a shot of Willis nodding, confirming what he's realized. Notably here, not another, not a matching close up shot. It's an over the shoulder shot. And I don't think it's an accident that Shyamalan frames it so that Joseph there shares the frame with him, even if it's just over his shoulder. Even the mom, played by Robin Wright Penn, appears over Willis's shoulder. And I think you can come at it one of two ways or both, emphasizing the moment that these two men are having and only they are having separate from her, 
us being aware of her in the frame, but it's also arguably the moment where this family unit, if it's ever going to be reformed, it's starting here because it only happens once the father, it only happens once David finally accepts himself. And that, that recognition of accepting his identity is what's playing out here in this scene with his son. We get a close up again of Joseph. He's starting to cry. David lightly shushes him and the kid stiffens his resolve a bit. Now nodding himself. He gets it. If you're too loud, mom will know something is up. I love that look of admiration that Clark has on his face and Willis, my goodness, just crushes this scene. Everything about his physicality in these moments. And we all melt a little bit when we see our kids cry about anything. Everything about his physicality suggests a father who wants to reach over and hug his kid, but he knows he can't. And he doesn't really even show that. He doesn't demonstrate that, but you you feel it in every fiber of his being. So I've talked about this dichotomy. We've got some scenes that are these really intimate, hushed character moments that are about the dialogue. And then we've got some that are more sweeping visual moments with little or no dialogue. Here, maybe we get the combo. It's the intimate father-son moment, this recognition, this secret they'll share and bond over, but no words. There's still nothing flashy about it, but it's cinematic. It's moving as hell. And I think there's something underlying too that Shyamalan gets at that makes the scene so special and this movie special as kids at some point, we all do kind of believe our dads are superheroes. We just do. And then of course we discover the truth in this case. He's always felt that his dad was a superhero. And in this moment, the truth is confirmed, not controverted. It's sort of the playing out of the ultimate young male fantasy on screen. And I also think, you know, going back to this idea of his collaboration with actors, if you have someone like Willis, who he'd obviously worked with before, you write a scene like this Mm -hmm. because it absolutely plays to his strengths, which we've talked about, the stillness, um, the melancholy, the reserve. You're just like, I mean, yes, he's excellent here, but you're also just setting him up to knock it out of the park by, by framing the scene this way. So it's it's absolutely one of Shyamalan's best. All right, should we talk about some better acting even? <laughs> is it? I mean, it might be. It is probably the only example that I could point to and say, yeah, that might actually be quote unquote better. We do have a shared number one. We have a shared favorite Shyamalan scene that probably won't be a surprise to people who remember us talking about it when we reviewed The Sixth Sense as part of our nine from 99 series. And maybe people are thinking Haley Joel Osment, cause he rightfully so got a lot of the attention when that movie came out as a young actor. But for me, it's always been Tony Collette them together, as we'll see, as I talk about this scene, but her performance throughout the movie absolutely elevated the sixth sense for me to be one of the horror greats. And for me, for you, Adam, we're talking about the, do I make her proud moment of them together in the car. This is where it does all come together for me in terms of those three Shyamalan elements. I talked about the late scene where Haley Joel Osment's Cole tells his mother, played by the great Tony Collette, that he's ready to communicate, that he can see dead people. So they're stuck in traffic and we have the formal control. We have the emotional material and we have the elevated acting. So to look at the formal control, especially in terms of suspense, 
on the surface, fairly straightforward, two characters in a car having a conversation, but somehow Shyamalan manages without breaking that intimacy to get a jump scare in here. After Cole tells his mother that they're stuck in traffic because there's this accident and someone has died up ahead, we get this flash of the bloodied biker standing outside his window. And it's richer than a jump scare. It has that function. It reminds us we are in a very freaky movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Don't get too comfortable here. It serves that purpose, but it also adds weight to the context of their conversation. It reminds us that Cole is dealing with people Mm -hmm. who have suffered real tragedy. This isn't just a ghost story he's living. It's a ghost life he's living. And we get a visual reminder of that with this glimpse of a ghost outside of the window. So that's the formal element. But then we segue into the point of the scene. And it's a moment of truth, similar to how you just described the unbreakable scene, Adam, between father and son. Here's a moment of truth of coming together between mother and son. And Osmond and Colette, they absolutely nail it. His whispered insistence that this is happening to me. You have to believe me. Here we come back Mm -hmm. to the faith question, right? Yeah. And then her, trace her over this scene. It's a wilting resistance that Colette takes us through. In the face of something she doesn't think she can believe, yet she wiltingly begins to resist to the possibility. And then you get the third element, the emotional element, which yes, is related. But just the natural way this plays out, we have a very naturalistic conversation despite the subject matter between mother and son. And we're watching a kid who's been in therapy become the therapist for his mother. And we're watching her become the relieved patient. And there is such emotional catharsis to that. Grandma says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. What? Grandma comes to visit me sometimes. Well, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Cole, please. She wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. She said, when you were little, you and her had a fight. Right before your dance recital. You thought she didn't come to see you dance. She did. You could argue that the, you know, the true relationship we're rooting for in the sixth sense is maybe not between Bruce Willis's doctor and his yeah, wife. This is the key. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's I yep. think what the narrative is trying to show us is right. it's Bruce Willis and his wife. And I think there's there's richness, emotional richness there, too. But it's the mother and son is the ones we become mm-hmm. most attached to. Um, and this is the scene where they have their breakthrough together. Yeah, that's what I was going to try to add is there are a lot of emotional threads that have to be tied up at the end of this film for it to be more than just a ghost story, more than just a sort of suspense thriller, and for it to be really effective on a human level, on an emotional level. It's Willis's character, Malcolm, reconciling his identity in his circumstances. It's the relationship between him and his wife. It's Cole and Malcolm's relationship. Cole coming to terms with his identity and what his life is going to be like and how he can harness it is not the right word because he's not going to use it as a superpower, but how he can just live with it, how he can actually live with it. But another filmmaker, even with the scenes we get between mother and son in this film, another filmmaker might have left out a scene like this at the end. And if they had given it to us, it might not have been quite as 
hard hitting and emotional as this is without that family thread being tied up without that moment of recognition and belief in her son occurring belief in what he's saying is accurate. And now they're finally on the same page, the same way the nod happens in my last scene between father and son, where now they are unified without that closing this movie, it wouldn't be as satisfying. And I just now noticed this, but actually in my notes for our discussion of the sixth sense, I compared this scene to the conversation at the breakfast table or that lack of conversation at the breakfast table in unbreakable. These scenes are absolutely of a pair to me. They're doing the same things and they work on the same level though. This does contain dialogue and the subtlety of the performances, the editing choices just feel so right. And look, there's not a lot he could do with the scene in that he has put them together in a car. It's a confined space. You're not going to expect a whole lot of camera movement, but just how comfortable Shyamalan is not trying to overdo it, not trying to make it more bravura than it is understanding that what we need to see is the resolution of this disconnect between mother and son. And he's going to let these two formidable actors play it out. Yeah. He's not thought of, I think as a filmmaker of restraint, but as you look over some of our favorite scenes here, Mm -hmm. not all of them, but a couple of them crucially rely on knowing when to hold back on some of the bravura choices and let the material and the actors do their jobs. She said, You came to the place where they buried her. Asked her a question. She said, the answer is, every day, what did you ask? Josh, this was the first scene I had in mind when I started writing down picks. Yeah. And it's the first scene I went to YouTube and watched. And I am telling you, within 10 seconds, <laughs> within 10 seconds, I was wiping away tears sitting at my desk. I felt like a lunatic, but that is how much this scene slays me. I think Colette shows similar restraint That's it. in her use of tears. That how she builds me, to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's how she gets to it. For me, is I'm more moved by the scenes where where the tears are, you know, you can sense they might come but don't. Or exactly. in this case, it's it goes back to that sense of resistance in her performance. We feel her resistance so strongly that it really washes over us when it finally breaks down. Those are our top five M. Night Shyamalan moments. Do you have any honorable mentions you would like to throw in, sir? Yeah, so the one from Signs I referenced before is the home video footage of the alien appearing at the birthday Really party. popular. I mean, it was, it's so yeah. popular, and I get it. And similar to what we've been talking about, you know, I initially said, well, that, that seems like too easy, right? Like, it's, it's sort of just a jump scare, but I went back and watched it. It's actually pretty sophisticated, too, in the way your visit pick works, Adam, is we're mm-hmm. using found footage, right? He's employing found footage here, but... The way he rings suspense out of going from one window to the next, the screaming of the kids at the birthday party, waiting to see what's outside. 
Uh, it's more sophisticated than a jump scare, um, but maybe um, just not quite as effective for me as the scene I chose from Signs. Still a great one. So that's my number six for sure. A couple more here. Uh, I wanted to give some credit to Abby Smith on Twitter. We had great responses on social media. So many good ones. By the way, which was very encouraging as a Shyamalan defender to see people really passionate and loving a lot of scenes, scenes that maybe I would have forgotten or not thought about. But Abby Smith, at that Abby Smith, says the open drawer scene in The Sixth Sense, Haley Joel Osment's palms flat on the table, his terror, she talking about his mother here, so scared, but has nothing visible to be afraid of. So she aims her fear at him. So it makes the viewer a little mm-hmm. afraid of him too. Perfect. I love that yeah. note about Abby reminding us, yeah, we're scared of Cole for much of the sixth sense, right? Mm-hmm. The village, I would have gone with your pick, Adam. I think that's a brilliant moment of Phoenix grabbing Howard's hand. And then here, because I am also a lady in the water defender, I have to give one more pick, which came from Alhazar Bulbasar on Twitter. The final two minutes of a lady in the water, him and Christopher Doyle and Paul Giamatti all doing career best work. So working with another great cinematographer there. And career yeah, best. I would agree. There is a nice <laughs> I don't know. career career best might be a little for yeah, Doyle and for, Giamatti. For Doyle might be a little um over the top there. But I do like this movie and I do like this final sequence. There's a nice shimmering shot, speaking of Doyle, looking up from under the pool water at Giamatti and Bryce Dallas Howard that is gorgeous and effective for the moment. I've got four honorable mentions and they divide up two and two into the bravura camp in the quiet, intimate dialogue moments. Though one of them, I suppose, isn't so quiet. It's it's bravura in its own way. The first choice, I'll say, is from Unbreakable. A lot of people pointed out the go-to-where-the-people-are scene on social media. So this is the, the precursor to the breakfast table nodding over the newspaper that we highlighted where – He goes to the train station and actually starts to use his semi-spidey sense to gauge potential evil doing and actually go about the business of trying to be a superhero. That's a big visual orchestrated sequence by Shyamalan. The other one I'd point to is a moment from Glass that I do think is really fun. I don't remember if it's the first scene where Samuel L. Jackson's character and James McAvoy's character have met. Or I think they've already met and now they're they're plotting what to do next. But it's the are you ready scene. If you go to YouTube and we'll link to it over at filmspotting.net slash list as well. But if you watch it, it's this swirling single take that follows these two characters around the room as they get a feel for each other and what their powers are or aren't. The quieter moments, at least in terms of the camera, the horde takes over scene and split is fun if only to watch James McAvoy do his own pyrotechnics with all of those variations on the personalities that he gives us. I think McAvoy's a great actor, so I'm a sucker for his performance there. The last one is the scene I was referencing earlier when I mentioned that my inclination at first was to go with a different scene from Signs at number three, and it's, Father, do you understand what I've told you? We see it in flashbacks a couple times, filling in the blanks of the wife's death and how that played out. Something about that dialogue scene between Cherry Jones, such a good actress. Yeah, she's great in there. He uses it in at least one other movie. I can't remember how many total, but I know at least twice. Her conversation as the sheriff, 
breaking this horrible news to the father, to this Episcopal priest that Gibson plays at this point. The acting, the writing, the subtlety of the direction there, again, not trying to do too much, utilizing close-ups and just watching these two people process what they're going through. That scene, maybe more than any other, is the one I remember. If you say signs to me, it's not the cornfield, it's not swing away, it's not the alien or even the pantry scene I picked. It's actually somehow Cherry Jones and Mel Gibson's faces in that scene. Yeah, Gibson, you know, not the same sort of actor as Willis, has different qualities, mm-hmm. but I think Shyamalan similarly gets some of Gibson's best work out of him when they were working together. Those are our top five M. Night Shyamalan moments. We would love to hear more of your picks or any feedback at all on our list and this show overall. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And I'll highlight one more time that you can review our picks and look at the scenes if you go to filmspotting.net slash lists and click on top fives. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll where we want to know what do you think of M. Night Shyamalan. Also on the website, you can get t-shirts or other merch just by going to filmspotting.net slash shop. Filmspotting is listener supported. Join the Filmspotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. Plus you get a weekly newsletter and a monthly bonus show, depending on which tier you pick. Earlier this week, we shared January's bonus show, a best picture winner's draft. I seem to recall both you and Sam chiding me for my choices, suggesting I had lost this one. Remind me how the voting's going so far, Josh. Uh, You tell me. I haven't checked. I think the last time I looked on Twitter, I am taking it with 48% of the vote. Oh, gosh. Godfather pandering. Mm, Godfather pandering, or as I like to call it, Godfather truthing. Sure. That's what happens (laughs) when I try to, you know, you're Pacino. You just got pulled in. You couldn't resist. I'm trying to chart my own path, Uh lead us to a different, brighter future. But no, I'm just going to get whacked. I think uh, I'll make the joke that Sam is Fredo in this scenario. He's in last place. (laughs) If you really would love to get involved beyond the bonus shows, you can become a film spotting advisory board member, help decide the content of the show, get to weigh in on things like the seating for Film Spotting Madness. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. And our next quarterly meeting is February 9th. So you have time to sign up and join us for that. A Zoom conversation with me, Josh, Sam, where we'll talk about madness and future marathons and a whole lot more. More information again at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, one of my favorite films of the year that more people need to see. Get your Oscars homework done if you can. The film from Belgium, Lucas Don't, his film Close, is expanding to more markets and is playing here in Chicago at the Music Box. In wide release, you can see Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin. You can also see 80s for Brady. I think the four women from 80s for Brady should have been the hostage takers and Knock at the Cabin. We reversed that. Could have worked. Okay. Would have had to switch up the 80s thing, but I'm I'm workshopping it. I think, I think you're Next onto week. something. Next week, we are planning our 60s film spotting madness tease, a sacred cow discussion of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's pretty good. 
and we may have some Oscars catch up as well. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.